You have a Bible, why don't you turn to Luke 19, verse 28 through 48 is our text. The message entitled, Jesus at Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Jesus has been ministering for over three years, and now he enters the last week of his ministry, arriving at Jerusalem, fully knowing all that he would suffer. He has set his face steadfastly towards Jerusalem from Caesarea Philippi in Luke 9.51. He's six months under the shadow of the cross from that point. And um, he made his way through the cities and villages teaching as he heads towards Jerusalem, Luke 13.22 tells us. Jesus has just taught at this point to his disciples a parable of a certain nobleman who went into a far country to receive a kingdom, then return. And he did this because as he was headed to Jerusalem, they thought that he's going to establish the kingdom of God. Verse 11 of the chapter tells us that. The disciples had a wrong theology, and we'll see this. Arriving at Bethphage and Bethany, as we will see, Jesus would enter Jerusalem in his triumphal entry, but not from man's perspective. They thought he was crazy. They thought he was not Messiah. They thought he was just uh, sacrilege. But yet it was triumphant from a heavenly perspective because of the fulfillment, not from man's perspective. The Lord Jesus told the Jews this in John 9, uh, 539. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they that testify of me. From Genesis to Revelation, there's what red thread, Jesus Christ. You can't miss it. There's not a lot of diverse opinions about how we get to heaven and through who we get to heaven. God's very, very narrow. Jesus said, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God, in Hebrews 10, 7. Genesis to Revelation, the volume of the book. The book of Revelation says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, Revelation 19, 10. So consistent the scriptures are. One, the scriptures are. They cannot be broken. God will fulfill all, even the smallest mark in the yoda of the tittle over the letters, Jesus said. Jesus was born for this very day as a witness against the Jews who rejected him and every person in every generation that will reject him. Absolutely. So there's a threefold uh, portrait of Jesus that is described for us here in the triumphal entry. Let me read our, our text for us, 28 to 48. Uh, when he has said this, meaning the parable, he went on ahead, going on to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where there, uh, you will enter, and you will find a cold tide, which no one has ever sat lucid and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to them, Because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away their way, and they found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosening the coal, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosening the coal? And they said, The Lord has need of him. And then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the coal, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road, then as he was now, drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these, these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that made for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment around you, surround you, and enclose you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And then he went into the temple, he began to drive out those who brought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, Christ, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to him. The threefold portrait that's given to us of Jesus in triumphal entry is first Jesus, the triumphant king, in verse 28 down to 40, the triumphant king. Second, we have the weeping prophet in verse 41 to 44. And thirdly, the righteous priest, 45 to 48. So you have king, priest, and prophet, fulfillment of all three. No king, uh, there were kings who were prophets. There were uh, priests who were prophets. But no man ever in the Old Testament held all three king, priest, and prophet. No one ever. This was the fulfillment only by Jesus Christ. Let's begin here by that triumphant king here, verse 28 to 40. Notice, uh, let me back up a little bit uh, to give you the background because it's in the context of, of the parable of Minas, 19 through 28. Um, Jesus is correcting the wrong theology because the disciples and apostles here um, thought that the kingdom was going to be established. Verse 11 makes that very, very clear. One of the favorite discussions of the disciples was who is the greatest in the kingdom. Uh, Luke 9:46 has already recorded it. Uh, he'll record it again later on. Um, in Mark 10:37, James and John sought the right and the left hand, and then they had their mommy go along. In Matthew 20:21, 20, just in case they were turned down by Jesus, because they think mommies don't get turned down, but Jesus turns down mommies, daddies. It doesn't matter. Uh, he says no. Um, the last time it's recorded is um, the night when Jesus celebrated the Passover. Uh, Luke 22:24 tells us that, and you can cross-reference that with John 13 which magnifies the offense when Jesus is there fulfilling all that the prophecies say, going to die for them. Their conversation is this. Hey, who do you think is the greatest in the kingdom? This is a very common conversation between pastors, people, people who serve, and the normal Christian. There's something in us that we always find our pecking order. And Paul says that we shouldn't compare among ourselves by ourselves, lest we be unwise. God has made you so unique and so perfect that he has called you to do certain things that no one else can do. He's equipped you, he's anointed you, and he will do it through you. And you're never to compare yourself because we don't compare ourselves. If God has three things for you to do and you miss one of three, that's pretty good. If God has 300 for you and you miss 299, that's not good. So you can't compare yourself. You've got to do what God has called you to do. And he's the one that will speak to you. Now the nobleman in verse 12 through 14 went to a far country to receive a kingdom for himself. And then he would return. And therefore he delegated to his servants certain uh, minas to do business until he returned. 
It's very evident when you look at verse 12, the nobleman represents Jesus Christ. He's headed towards Jerusalem. He's doing this because they think he's going to set up the kingdom. The disciples in verse 13 um, are represented by the servants. And the citizens that hated Jesus are the Jews in verse 14. At the return in verse 13 through 23, the nobleman returns and he summons his uh, servants so that he can reward them according to the faithfulness of the stewardship. Uh, those who multiplied the initial endowment were rewarded accordingly, 15 through 19. And those who failed to do so, it was taken from them and given to another in verse 20 through 26. So in 27, those who rejected him then would be slain at his coming. It's very evident. The primary application here is the Jews who were rejecting him. He's going to prophesy about the destruction of Jerusalem. Long-term wise, the second coming, the Gentile will also be destroyed. So you have your short-term, your long-term all the time. And notice in 28, Luke says, When he has said this, he went on ahead, going to Jerusalem. There's a, he gives us the reason why he said that. If he wouldn't have told us, we would have tried to figure, we would just say, well, it's just a regular parable. Very specific reason. They thought he was going to set up the kingdom. Now look at 29. Jesus was um, traveling from Jericho to the Mount of Olives. Uh, the route is probably the very dangerous old Jericho road that uh, uh, in the mid-80s backwards, we would all travel with those big buses and people got freaked out when we were around the corner. Now you've got the new road, it's bigger and all that. Um, it's probably the same one that the parable of uh, the uh, Good Samaritan that Jesus gave where he was assaulted. Uh, many would be assaulted at that time. When you come towards Jerusalem, Beth- Bethany and um, um, Bethphage are in the same area, the east side of the Mount of Olives, somewhere in the same region, in uh, three miles or so. And the Mount of Olives is very key because, as you know, when Jesus resurrected, then he, le- he ascended up on high in Acts one twelve. And the angel says, why do you men stand here gazing at the sky the very same way you saw him go? He will return. And when he returns, Zechariah 14.4 tells us that Jesus will touch the Mount of Olives with his foot. It will cleave in two. There will be a source of gushing water coming from Jerusalem um, out to the Mediterranean and out to the Dead Sea to replenish and there will be fish in there. And he'll change the topography, set up the kingdom age. So the Mount of Olives is very, very important. Uh, now, Jesus is traveling from the backside, and as he comes over the Mount of Olives, then he'll see the city and the temple. It's a beautiful sight. When we get there, we get there in the evening. You're coming down. They call Jerusalem the golden because the sun is, is, is shining on the city. In all of Jerusalem, there's an edict that it can only be built with, with Jerusalem stone, David's stone. It makes it kind of a golden look uh, when the, the, the sun hits it. And so here now, notice in verse 29 of the end, to 34, Jesus sent his disciples for the coal. And just as he said, two disciples are sent. And uh, he, he, he tells them he would find the coal tied. And if the man would say something, they would say the Lord has need of him. Again, he would realize that everything he had belonged to the Lord. Um, they talked to him. They did so. But this was more than just um, uh, some short prophecy about some uh, donkey. Zechariah 9, 9 and gave the prophecy of fulfillment that, uh, behold, your Lord rides into Jerusalem lowly on the colt, on the foal of a donkey. Very specific. And, Je- and Zechariah 9.9 has a twofold prophecy, the first coming and the second coming. Just as Isaiah has a twofold, short-term and long-term. And Jesus filled, fulfilled the first one in the, in the synagogue of nazareth as he gave the scroll and he says this day in your hearing these scriptures are fulfilled and closed it the remainder comes in the second coming 
So you have prophecies short and long-term wise often in the same thing without distinction. Now, the fulfillment of this one, God had given him the date. If you remember when Nehemiah was um, called by God to restore and rebuild Jerusalem under um, Artaxerxes, that um, there was a, a commencing date. And so if you start the date of March 14, 445 B.C., and you project it forward on a 360 biblical calendar in Genesis, if you examine it, it's not 365, the Gregorian calendar. And if you take that date and project it forward, you land on April the 6th of 32 A.D., and that's the date when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, 483 years to the day. If you go by the 360 calendar, then you're talking about 1,000. Uh, 173,880 days to the very day. What are the chances that that it came right to the day? Now, some people, not everybody believes this prophecy uh, to be that, okay? Some people believe that this calculation is wrong. Well, what, what is Jesus talking about when he says, this is your day? If they didn't know the day, then Jesus is being unjust to pronounce judgment on them. But if he gave them information they should have known and they had it, and they didn't respond to it, then the judgment is absolutely righteous, right? So I choose to go that they knew. They should have known at least, but they didn't. Now, notice in 35 to 38, Jesus accepted worship as their king. This is the first time that Jesus ever accepted public worship. Verse 35, they put on the, their clothes on the colt for him to sit. They laid it on the ground, on the route that he was going to travel in 36, they rejoiced and praised God, the whole multitude of disciples, for the mighty works that they had witnessed. And the, mighty, the, the multitude of disciples here goes beyond the 12. They had thousands of disciples following Jesus. You read the gospel, the crowds and all that. Now, not everybody was a disciple, but there were many there. And they're quoting Psalm 118, 26, which speaks of the day of the second coming. Once again, the prophecy has a short-term Long-term, short-term the first coming, long-term the second coming. Matthew adds the words, Hosanna, save now. He came to his own, the Jew, and they received him not. He came to make the way of salvation. He'll come the second time to save the remnant of the Jew. Notice 39 and 40, Jesus testified to the appropriateness of his worship. The Pharisees attempted to stop him, telling him to rebuke his disciples in verse 39. And Jesus declared that even if he did so, nature knew the prophetic event of this day and that it would not be silenced. The stones would cry out. In other words, this was a very specific day. And they, as the people of God who had the prophetic revelation of God, were the ones to have known exactly what was going to happen. You know that when God had given to David the twofold prophecy about Solomon short-term and Messiah long-term for the kingdom and the throne, when David was dying, his um, son Adonijah attempted to usurp the throne of David. And uh, so David commanded the psalm be put on his mule and, and that he write to Gihon as king. And so the fulfillment here with, with Jesus, he's writing in a, a, a horse is, an, is a symbol of war. Uh, a mule or a donkey is a symbol of peace for kings, as they ride in. And so you have here the long-term fulfillment that the real king is Jesus riding in. Solomon was a short-term. Jesus is a long-term one. You know, the world 
is divided into two categories. Servants of the king by repenting and occupying as light <clears throat> and salt in this world until Jesus returns. Um, nations come and go. <clears throat> cultures come and go. Empires come and go. Countries come and go. But the church of Jesus Christ exists in every one of them. We are not here to conquer the world. We are not here to establish a kingdom. We're not here to to do anything but to be a light and salt, to pull people out of the fire, to proclaim the revelation of God, which is inerrant and infallible, so that as many as believe will be saved. That's what we're here for. The process of time is the test of all things. First John 3.10 says, And this the children of God. And the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So there's a certain manner of lifestyle that, that has come upon us that didn't come of ourselves, but because of the new, new birth. Uh, if you're born again, you, you, you live differently. You think differently. You do different things, okay? You're never sinless. You're never perfect. But you are totally different than the way you lived before. And you're growing and you're developing spiritually. Um, the other is the rebel, who is not wanting anything to do with Jesus. They see there's no need of repentance. They don't want Jesus to control their lives, so they run their own lives, and God allows them. So you stand in one of two categories today. Now, before the sermon is over, I'm going to give you an opportunity to accept the Lord. And it's a choice where you spend eternity. God does not decide it. You decide it. Now, the process of time, as I said, is a test of all things. It will reveal whether we are servants of God or rebels. If I understand that I have be, everything I have belongs to God, then I place everything under his feet. And I realize that nothing is mine. And that all that I have, even though I have worked hard for it, who gave me the hell, who gave me the brains, who gave me the opportunity, it's the Lord. Who brought me forth from my mother's womb that makes me to be here. It's God. And if you're a non-believer, you might have worked hard, you might have been real smart and everything else, and you may have rolled up your sleeves and worked, but who gave you the ability? The rain falls on the just and the unjust. The problem is that too often when we're talking about putting everything under God's feet, people right away that don't know Christ think of money because pastors and, and, and churches are always pushing money. And so we get a bad rap, and rightly so, because they make the focus of that. But more than that, your ability, your talents, your, your anointing that God has called you, that you would put that under his feet and that you would serve him in every way, in the capacity he's given to you. Uh, he doesn't just want your money. He, he wants you to be involved. He wants you to be part of his work. He wants to use you in every which way. Living a very uh, clear life of priorities. Um, the things that we had in priorities in the world compared to now. Um, in the world, you were into whatever. Maybe some of you were into camping, and that was your priority. You had your whole year set out. You know, your vacation, this and that, your this and that. And other of you were... Surfing, either you were, you know, on your motorcycle. You know, you live that world around. Now your priority is the kingdom of God first, and then everything else falls under it. Now people think you're crazy. They say, you know, it used to be fun. What happened? Right? Because our priorities changed. See, before you only saw a one-way street, and you drove as fast as you could. Now you see it's a two-way street, and it's very dangerous to drive that way. It used to be on a one-way street. Now you see there's two ways. The right way and the wrong way. And people are headed for destruction. Heaven is this way. They're going this way. And you know, you used to be on that lane. Makes a big difference. 
how you serve your home, love your wife, love your husband, your children, you care for them. Very important. People look and people are listening. My little children, let us not love in word or in deed or tongue or in tongue, but also in deed and in truth. First John three eighteen. So in other words, um, we try to be as accurate as we can. And when we fail, we ask forgiveness. We ask God to cleanse us and we ask forgiveness of people when we blow it. But we keep going because we know that he is able to set us on our feet and to give us the wisdom and to be that light. It's all because of him. You know, the worship that uh, you and I give to Jesus is acceptable to him or it's not. And it's all based not on how good I sing. It's based on whether my heart is right with him. It's whether my lips are really saying what really is in my heart or whether it's a contradiction. Um, Singing is this formality and the mechanics that go on. Some people think that the first half hour we meet is just a fill-in for the lay people. But it really isn't. It's a time of you to worship God. And to thank him for giving you one more day to get up this morning. Can you imagine? Have you ever considered that God allowed you to get up today and breathe again? Give you another day? Amazing. If my heart is one with God, then God will honor them. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open. The eyes of whom we have to give an account and must give an account. Hebrews 4.13 and living like that is healthy. Uh, you know, I love my dad, and I, um, I respected my dad, but I feared my dad. And that's a good, healthy balance. Now, I don't serve God out of fear, but I serve him out of love. But I know that I fear him. <laughs> okay? It's very important. Uh, he's the creator. I'm the creature. <laughs> he knows everything. I know very little. And I have to keep that perspective. And so the clear understanding of prophecy should reveal to you and I the incredible odds against coincidence here with this prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, Daniel 9.24-26. There is no chance of it. No chance of it. So Jesus will rule over your life and all things as king if, if you allow him. You and I take that test every day. Every hour of the day. Every week, every month, every year until the day we die. Sometimes we pass a test. Sometimes we have to stay after school and take the test over again. Jesus was um, the triumphant king. Not from man's perspective. But from God's perspective, absolutely. Secondly, you see him as Jesus, the weeping prophet, 41 through 44. In 41, Jesus perceived the city and he wept over it. The word web simply means to mourn and lament. Um, This weeping reveals emotional pain. We can identify that Jesus was 100% a man. Uh, The weeping expresses a heartfelt grief. Um, He he knew all that was going to happen. He wept because he drew near and he knew they were going to reject him ultimately. He knew that seeing the city that he loved it would be destroyed he wept in view of all the prophets that had been sent to her and yet she has stoned all of them Jesus wept for her refusal to be gathered as a chick by a hen under her wings Jesus wept seeing that she had chosen to become desolate till his second coming his heart was broken 
Absolutely. Jesus sobbed and he wailed of a broken heart. And no different than in the Old Testament. The Jews had not changed. The people of God had not changed. Now sometimes people say, think the God of the Old Testament, the God of wrath, the God of the New Testament, the God of love and grace. No, you're wrong. Listen to the words of God, the Father, in the Old Testament as he speaks to his people, the vineyard, in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 4 through 5. He says, what more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected to bring forth good graves, did it bring forth wild graves? And now, because please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. Judgment. Did you hear the words of God? What more could I have done? In other words, there was human choice and will. God didn't say, well, you guys rejected me because I predestined you not to believe. Because if God predestined them not to believe, then how could God judge them and be righteous and just and holy? He couldn't. There's always a free will, ladies and gentlemen, Old Testament or new. Don't get caught up in those law of grace stuff, okay? There are two different economies, but it's, if you want to start the doctrine of grace, you better go back to Genesis and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You think Noah deserved salvation? No more than you and I, no. But he believed God. Notice 42 to 44, Jesus proclaimed the reason for his weeping. In verse 44, first, it's due to the privilege and honor. The city had not lived up to being called the city of God, the city of David, the holy city. Jesus said, if you had known, declaring her spiritual blindness, if you had known, they didn't know. Even you, identifying the people in the city chosen by God to represent him. He chose one nation, Israel. But secondly, due to the ignorance of the city concerning the prophetic scriptures. In 42, Jesus said, especially in this, your day. Not this day. Your day. The very day was given by the prophets. These things, the things that make for your peace, the blessing God wanted to bestow on them. Your day, blessing. You want to bless your child. You want to do the best for him. It may have been this morning when he got up. But he got up with an attitude. So he didn't get a blessing. It's voided. Could have had it. Does it make you bad? No. Makes you a responsible parent. Makes you wise. Right? But now they are hidden from your eyes. They had forfeited their day of blessing. Not God. They. For blindness will remain until the fullness of the Gentile comes in in Romans eleven twenty five. The fullness of the Gentile is the full number of people to be saved before the rapture. Don't confuse that with the time of the Gentile. The time of the Gentile began with Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold. 
and it goes all the way to the Ten Tills Confederacy of the Antichrist. When Israel is not in control, but the Gentile world is. Okay? Don't confuse the two. Second is, or here, the third reason is, due to the fact that the city would be given over to judgment. That's what follows. The day would be certain, for days will come upon you. There's no maybe here. As you know, Roman General Titus in 70, um, he came in and leveled it. When your enemies will build an embarkment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side. That's what you do. That's what they did in those days. You cut off everything, no food, no water, no messengers, nothing. And then turmoil and rebellion starts within. There's pillage, there's raping, there's cannibalism, all kinds of horrible stuff that happens. Then they just walk in. The city and temple would be destroyed. Look at 44 there. The loss would be total and level you and your children within you to the ground. Horrible. The temple would be dismantled, be put on fire. They would remove one stone from another to recover all the gold. Jesus made this clear in Matthew 24 as he's uh, speaking there. And the reason is given. They failed to recognize the appointed time of their Messiah's coming. Listen to the words. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Wow. What father or mother has not wept over the spiritual blindness of their child? Because they know, they know the destruction that awaits them. First here on earth, but then ultimately if they die. This is Jesus. He knows specifically all the things that are going to fall upon them because they rejected him. We should be aware of our high privilege in Christ and not be ignorant of it. Our potential to live abundantly. Our potential to think clearly. Our potential to not be in bondage to sin anymore. Our potential to marry a godly person, those of you who are single. It is an awesome responsibility you have. And if you marry a believer, God will have his hand upon you. You marry a non-believer, it's going to bite you. One way or the other. You cannot go on the presupposition, well, but if I marry them, they may come. That's not... What God says. Has God saved some who have been disobedient? Yes. Is, is that the basis for doctrine? No. You do not become unequally yoked. It's like jumping from the fire, fire plant to the fire. You get your end to your hurt. Can a believer betray you and walk away or commit a Yes. But you have obeyed God. God will honor you. You understand me? He'll take care of you. So you don't disobey and rationalize something because of the possibilities of what others could do. Who saved you? Who's in control? Very important. Our potential to study, to pray, to serve others. um, To show them how God has transformed our lives. What a high privilege we have. I mean, we went out of our way to try to convince people how cool we were, how fun we were, how nice we were, 
but they were all lies. Now God says, just be yourself. Be like me, and I'll take care of the rest. He's really made it easy for me. Luke 17, 10 says, So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Wow. Perspective. Everybody is so full of themselves today. It, you know, it's, 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 it's nauseating. Even within Christian circles. Unprofitable servant is what I am. Many pastors have the title reverend. There's nothing reverend about me. When I get letters in my mailbox that says Reverend Xavier Reese, I know they don't know me. The word for minister is a key word of deacon. Literally means a waiter on tables. I'm just a glorified waiter boy. That's all I am. I serve spiritual food and I am not allowed to mess with it. I am not the cook. i just supposed to serve it. Simple. We should be aware of the things that make for our peace every day and not be willingly ignorant. There are many things to distract you, to derail you, to disgust you and everything else. Not trusting in God, but trusting in yourself is a good way to start that way. By not depending on your feelings or your emotions or the circumstance, but God, that's a better way. Bring your thoughts into captivity to the obedience of Christ so you don't get distracted or, or, or sidetracked or anything else. Or discouraged by putting on the mind of Christ. I take him one day at a time. That's all I can handle. Um, God puts people around you to remind you of that because we can all get overwhelmed by circumstances, situations, and we need one another to encourage one another, sometimes even to rebuke one another and to remind one another. You know, and, and the best of us, I don't care who you are. You can shine everything else, but we're all made of clay. Our, our feet are all of clay, and we all uh, made of the same stuff. And uh, um, Satan will attack you and... In every way he can. So you've got to be grounded in the word of God. You've got to put on that mind of Christ. <clears throat> the scripture says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will uh, direct your path. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh. And strength to your bones. Proverbs 3. 5-8. through eight. That's wisdom. And that is just sound wisdom. If that was the only proverb we have, we have all the proverbs we need for life. That would be it. We need nothing else. We should be aware of God's uh, visitation on our life, lest we be uh, set on our own will that uh, Jesus would weep for us even now. Maybe some of you aren't saved and he weeps over your salvation because you keep hearing the gospel. And you keep rejecting it every time, procrastinating. And you say, well, you know, right now I'm too busy. I've got this thing going on. And, you know, i got this thing with this chick. And, you know, right now it's just not the right time. And, oh, this guy. And, and, and God says, thou fool, today your soul is required of you. Tomorrow's promise to no one. 
maybe for your lack of obedience in certain areas of your life that you refuse to place at the Lord's feet because somehow you think that um, you're an exception or that because God hasn't dealt with you that somehow he approves of it. That's, that's wrong, wrong thinking. Maybe um, for not turning over your unbelieving mate and you're doing all you can to save them and you're frustrated because you've done it for so many years and doggone it, he's not saved yet or her. But God's never called you to save your mate. If you've come to the Lord after being married, then you need to pray for them. You need to be an example to them and let God save them. You're just called to be obedient to God's word. That's difficult, but God is able to do that. You can't say to people, well, but you don't know. No, 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 we don't compare ourselves. If God saved you, and you were married in the world, and you've got a non-believing mate, God will do everything he can to save them. Your responsibility is to pray for them, to show them Christ, and be ready to give an answer that's in the Bible, according to their question. And God's the one who saves. Maybe for not depending on Jesus the raising of your children, you know, even though you call yourself a Christian, you're trusting in all the psychology, sociology, and the latest books and everything else, and you know, and you're not trusting the Word of God. The Word of God. Turn your kids over to the Word of God. Let them read the Word of God. You know, discipline your child while you're disciplining your child. Turn to Ephesians. Turn to Colossians. Ask them to read this Bible. What does it say about your, your responsibility to me? Children, obey your parents. It's the first commandment with promise. You'll live long life. Amen. <laughs> Let them read the word. Let them be accountable to God. Maybe if we're not looking to or trusting and depending on Jesus for your marriage. And it's almost like playing football without a helmet. It can be like that. First of all, there's no, there's no um, perfect marriages. Sometimes you look at some marriages say, boy, I wish I had him as a husband. No, you don't. No, you don't. Or you look at a beautiful woman and say, man, I wish she was my wife. No, you don't. The one right next to you is the perfect one. You've got the best. You just don't know it. And if we don't understand that, then we'll always be looking all over the place. And be just like the world. You remember Samuel spoke to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23. He says, Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Quite a statement. He's talking to believers who did his own will and it cost him greatly. For me to disobey God is like obeying a different spirit, witchcraft, that's satanic. The greatest rebel against God, Satan. Idolatry, putting someone before the Lord, my will against his will. And so these are things that I have to remember and learn every day. Because I'm hard-headed. 
somehow I think I know better. Somehow I think I may be the exception. Somehow I, I may think that I can pull it off. You know how that goes. It doesn't go good. We should be aware about the nearness of the rapture and the second coming. And how many will weep when they're left behind. Having heard, having known. But yet, not having known the day of their visitation. Jesus put it this way. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Luke twenty-one thirty-six. For the Son of Man will come in his glory the glory of the Father with his angels, and then he will reward them according to their works. Matthew sixteen twenty seven. He's talking about the second coming there. Jesus said, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Matthew twenty five thirteen. That's the second coming. That's Jewish ground. The church is nowhere in Matthew twenty four twenty five. It's all Jewish ground. The blessed hope that Titus speaks about, he says, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13. I mean, just that God is going to remove his church. If you think this world is dark right now, it's going to get pitch black in one thousand of a second when he removes his church. Every restraining force will be removed. There'll be nothing but evil and darkness. Jesus was a weeping prophet. He could see the consequences coming. He wept. Notice thirdly, you see Jesus, a righteous priest, in verse 45 to 48. In 45, Jesus drove out those who... Um, bought and sold during the, um, uh, the feast day. They corrupted the temple in this. The priests sold sacrifices at an exorbitant amount of money, you know, and they would bring their sacrifice, so they would always find some spot, some blemish to reject it, so they could buy their own sacrifice, which would be just, of course, really expensive, like going to the airport, you know, you ask for a Coke, and they give you six ounces, and they charge you $20. And so, the same thing. And, um, but this has always been the case, uh, God's people always get merchandised by people who sometimes are legitimately called, anointed, and directed by God at the beginning, but then they take off in their own little kingdom. And all of a sudden, you know, they just merchandise God's people. Um, you know, we try to attempt to make uh, everything as, as uh, affordable as we can for you, knowing that many of you work so hard and some of you are limited and everything. So when we give you the word, like when we put the thumb drives, we give them for $40. There's, there's 800 hours. Are you kidding me? 800 hours. Before they used to sell tapes at $2. This is at $2. That's $1,600. <laughs> the people used to pay and everything. We just want you to have it. We want you to give it out. Download it on a computer. You have it for your car. Give it to three people. Download it. For, I could care less. The Word of God doesn't do any good if it's stored. So you can grow. So you can learn. You can turn and see exactly what that verse says. What's the context? What's going on? And how does that fit here? And all the series, everything on. 35 years. Amazing. One little thing. One little thumb drive. All those hours. Amazing. God is so amazing to allow man to be so smart and yet he's so stupid at the same time. Jesus was upset. The priests would justify the denial 
to help parents financially too. They would say, well, you know, if you give it to the Lord, Corbin, it's a gift to the Lord in Mark seven eleven. then, you know, you don't have to help your parents. Just give it to us because they knew that they were going to benefit from it. Corrupt. Scribes and they were like lawyers, you know what I mean? If you're a lawyer, don't get all upset, but that's just the way it is. My, my dad used to say the law is like a rubber band. It depends who's pulling it and how long. You've got moral, righteous people, there's justice. When they become corrupt, it's all over the place. In the place that, that fails our nation, in the da- most dangerous it is, is in the judicial system. Once that goes and it's gone, we're dead. Because you have no way of defending yourself in court. And so you must trust the Lord. But the first century church had a lot worse than we do. We haven't arrived yet. Nero called himself um, Augustus. Uh, Greco called himself Augustus. He picked the title of a god. Last time I checked, Obama did. hasn't called himself God. Not yet. But, um, um, but we haven't arrived. Okay? As bad as we are right now, we're still not like the first century church was. Uh, they, they, they were persecuted horrendously. And so uh, money exchangers also were there and they would change for a certain amount. As you know, when you travel, you have to exchange monetary uh, coinage and bills and that. And they take a little chunk and they give you back. And it's possible if you stay in the same window and you would give them your dollar and they take a, uh, a chunk when you exchange it and then they exchange it back, sit there and back and forth, back and forth. There would come a point where you walk away with nothing. They have it all. It's the greatest business in the world. Money exchange. There, there's no warehouses, there's no inventory, there's nothing. I just keep your money. Bankers. Wow. Lawyers. Wow. Politicians. Wow. Corrupt. Distort. And when it gets into the religious realm, it's the worst of all. Because they use God for it. Notice in 46, Jesus... Um, declared um, the true function of the temple. Um, he quotes the scriptures written, my house is a house of prayer. Prayer is the meeting place of God and prayer is when we tap into the things in the mind of God. Prayer is the privilege to go before God that he would listen to me, that he would direct and guide me, that I have access to him, the privilege of coming before him. And it's probably the least that we use, prayer. You can go at night, you can go in the day, whenever you are, it doesn't matter whether you're laying down, standing up, you know, God hears you. You don't have to ever wait in line, you don't have to pull a number, you're there before him, instantly. Jesus charged them with their sin, but you have made it a den of thieves. They corrupted God's house, they corrupted the things of God. Nothing new. It happens today, all over. Always will. Because men and women are sinful. In 47 and 48, Jesus instructed them in the ways of God. He has entered in. He has rebuked them. Now, he instructs them in the ways of God. In 47, Jesus taught them every day. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The greatest failure of the church today is to teach solid teaching. The greatest problem is false teaching. It's all over the church today. Jesus was opposed and plotted against by the religious rulers. It says, but the chief priest and the scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. 
Here he is. He's come as king, prophet, and priest to save them, to offer them forgiveness, and they want to kill him. Now, we get a little taste of that. When you get born again, you try to tell your mom, your dad, your uncles, your friends, or whatever at first. They don't say, oh, man, thank you very much. Once in a while, you get into response. You know, they accept love. But at first, no. It's, it's, it's a hard liner. People feel, how dare you? And especially in the arena of today, no judgment, political correctness, and that everybody has some worth. Are you kidding me? The Bible describes us as bad produce in Romans. If you ever worked in the grocery stores and you worked the produce department, you know that you can get credit on anything that gets damaged. You drop a pop bottle, you save the cap, you get credit. A can, you save it, you get credit. But produce, throw it away. You get no credit at all. It's perishable. That's how God describes us. Good for nothing. We must trust the Lord for all this continually. And so here, they're rejecting them. Nothing has changed. They still have uh, the descendants of the chief priests and everything today. And Jesus was untouched because God's hand was upon him. The people were around him, unable to do anything, and all the people were very attentive to him. Um, He's going to die this week. And yet... He has time to teach every day. Now, if, you're gonna, if, you, if you knew you were going to die at the end of the week, what would you do? Would you change anything of your normal Christian life? You shouldn't. If you do, then you haven't been living by priorities. Nothing should change. He just taught. Knowing he was going to die. If God calls you to teach or whatever he does then he will protect you. Nothing can happen to you. Listen, if you, if you obey God, you'll die right on time. But it's your responsibility to walk with God and to see what he has for you. God will anoint you. God will call you. God will direct you. God will guide you. God will protect you. I told Jeremiah, no one's going to touch you. You look at the end of the book, nothing, nobody touched him. The head executioner said, Jeremiah, Jeremiah what do you want to do? Let me set you up here. I can leave you here. You want me to go back to Babylon with me? I'll set you up there. What do you want to do? Jeremiah says, I'll stick around. Okay. Then they took him after they killed Gedaliah and went down to Egypt with all the rebels and probably died there. But God was faithful to his word, right? One day Uzziah, good king, but he presumed upon his authority he entered the temple and he offered incense and therefore God struck him with leprosy. The sons of um, Aaron, after all the instruction of Leviticus and all that, in Leviticus 10, they offered the first sacrifice and they offered strange fire. They drank a little Boone's Farm apple wine and God just barbecued them. Um, Don't presume upon the grace of God. Don't enter an area that God hasn't gifted you in. If you're a foot, walk. If you're a hand, grab. If you're an ear, listen. And don't say you don't need the other parts. God's body is all put together. And if you do your part, the other parts will do their part, and God gets the glory, and he works it all out. 
But you can never say, I have no need of the foot, I have no need of the eye, I have no need of the ear. One body, many members. Many today are using the Christian faith for the, their own benefit and profit. There's a great and tremendous merchandising of God's people. And sometimes it's to build the kingdom of the person who God has legitimately called at the beginning. Anointed, directed. And they've gotten off on their own little kingdom. Now they're into marketing, merchandising, and constantly selling their programs, right? And the thing of it is, God will still use them to save people. Does that bother you? I rejoice that people get saved. But I don't rejoice for what they're doing. But God will deal with that, not me. But I'm to be smart enough to see it and to know it. And not to be part of it. Right? That's important. Luke 12.34 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He didn't say where your heart is. Where your treasure is. That's where your heart's going to be. What, who's your tre- if your treasure is not Jesus Christ, it's going to be all over the place. It must be Jesus Christ. The need of today is no different than the first century church. We need to pray and study God's word constantly and acknowledge our dependency on him and his faithfulness to us and that he's the one that prepares us and goes before us. Um, it, you know, you tell some of your people that you know and friends that that you sit for an hour being taught. You, you sit, what, an hour? Yep. Because the church today is not teaching the word of God. They have many programs and entertainments motivational speakers how to get out of your finances all kinds of different stuff and they do it and you know and, and but they don't teach the word of god it's because they're not they don't have a hunger for god's word they don't have an appetite for god's word you see i'm the first one to know if i'm boring i see your mugs for an hour <laughs> again blurrier but but i can tell if you're bored I see you guys writing. The time flies. Because you love the word of God. God speaks to your heart. Not because I'm a great teacher, because God is faithful. And you come to hear God. Not a man. That makes all the difference in the world. Hebrews 10, 24, 25 says, And let us consider one another. In order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. The ecumenical movement is very alive and strong, promoting man's devices, their methodology, their marketing principles, whatever it may be depending on the worldly aspect and the admixture and integration of all these things and trying to make it Christianity. You cannot mix oil and water, ladies and gentlemen. You can put them in the same bottle, shake them up, and they look like they mix. Just set it down, come back in a minute. All you need is a minute, 60 seconds, and that water and oil will begin to separate all on its own. 
you must look to God and His Word and nothing else. You add nothing to this Word. You mix nothing with this Word. You use nothing to interpret this Word but the Word of God. Scripture interprets Scripture. All the evidence of the Scriptures is in the Scriptures, not outside the Scriptures. They get together, they want to be one under love instead of doctrine. That's a great, great mistake. They're into social justice and wealth distribution. And they have a nerve to accuse Jesus of doing that. Blasphemous. Everything Jesus gave, he provided miraculously. And Jesus never took anything from anybody to give it to another. That's called theft. You can give anything you want away. You can give all you have away. You do it of your own. When someone takes it from you, whether it be by force or by legislation, that's called theft. We have a commander and thief. And he's bankrupt us. Simple. Simple. So some of you may be biting your nails about the election. Please don't. You're children of God. God does not bite his nails. Make your choice. Do not, do not sit home and not vote. It's irresponsible. God has put government, ordained government. He puts me under the government. God used government to get Mary and Jesus down to Bethlehem to be born. You must make a decision. If the Lord tarries, your children and grandchildren will be here. You must pick the lesser of the two evils. I am not expecting righteousness. I'm expecting the best of the, of the evils. All right? If I stay home, I lose two votes. One on my decision to vote, and the other one giving it to the other side. It's two votes you're actually throwing away. All right? God is in control, ladies and gentlemen. Do you think God was not on the throne when, when Nebuchadnezzar was reigning? How about Medo Persia Cyrus? How about Alexander the Great? How about Rome? How about Nero? How about when we're going through the Cold War with Khrushchev, with Eisenhower, into the Kennedy thing? You think God's worried now about Iran? You think He's not dealing with the world? But you've got to do your part. I wasn't born in this country. It's a high privilege for me to vote. You must stand for righteousness. And you make that decision because God has placed government. Bad government is better than no government. No government is full-blown anarchy. You hear what I'm saying? All right? So don't let no stupid pastor or stupid Christian convince you to sit home. You do what you're supposed to. Think through, vote biblically, and you pick the best one. I go to the market, there's two bananas only left. One has ten black spots, the other one has two. I'm going to take the two. <laughs> All right? Simple. End of conversation. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy, <clears throat> empty deceit. According to the traditions of man, according to the basic principle of the world, according and not according to Christ. Phileo Sophia, the love of wisdom. You must be biblical, ladies and gentlemen. I don't want you to quote me. I want you to quote the word of God. 
I want you to be a good Berean. I want you to examine. You have a question of something? You don't think I'm right? I'm always here after every sermon. Every year I've served you, up to date, I'm, I'm here. I don't leave until I ask your, answer your question. Okay? Doesn't mean I'm going to agree with you. I'll give you a reason why. You need to check everything out. And so, Jesus was a righteous priest. You have king, priest, or king, prophet, and priest. Amazing prophecy. A threefold portrait of Jesus on Palm Sunday. Jesus, the triumphant king, Jesus, the weeping prophet, and Jesus, the righteous priest. A very specific day. First coming has been fulfilled. We're waiting for the second coming. As we look around, we see the nearness of it. Our salvation is closer and nearer than when we first believed. And so we should pray and watch that we be worthy to escape all these things that come upon the world. Father, thank you for your goodness, your love. Deal with our hearts and cause us to just trust you in all things and to never mess with your word, Lord. And Father, we pray that you would just deal with us even now. If there's some here who, doesn't, who do not know you, Lord, or even over the internet, you would make yourself known to them, your love, your grace, and your desire to forgive them, Lord. And as you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. A simple prayer of repentance is what God requires in the name of Jesus Christ. And then he says he forgives you, gives you a new heart, a new mind, makes you his child by grace through faith. If this is your desire, right where you sit, you can accept him right now. This is your prayer. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.